everybody, and welcome back to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. Uh, this is episode, like, 88, 89, something like that of the podcast. Somewhere in the somewhere in the high 80s. I never remember which episode it is. But, uh, so, basically, you know, we're not a new podcast anymore. But uh, for the people out there just tuning in for the first time, uh, basically what this podcast is about, what we try to do here is I uh, bring an author on to discuss a book of theirs that's been uh, newly published or recently published, something we think you guys out there would like to... Uh, hear a conversation about or a discussion about and then uh, hopefully um you know at the end of the podcast or you know even in the middle of the podcast if you're feeling frisky uh you go out and uh give the book uh buy the book yourself and uh you know take it home and give it a read so uh, if you like this podcast please uh, consider giving illiteracy a five-star review at apple podcasts or wherever you listen to this show and also by sharing with your friends as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this and my guest today is Dr. Brian P. Levac, and uh, Dr. Levac is the John E. Green Regents Professor Emeritus in History at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, he has written widely on the legal, political, and religious history of early modern Europe. His books include The Civil Lawyers in England, 1603 to 1641, a political study, uh, The Formation of the British State, England, Scotland, and the Union, 1603 to 1707, uh, The Witch Hunt in Early Modern Europe, Witch Hunting in Scotland, Law, Politics, and Religion, and The Devil Within, Possession and Exorcism in the Christian West. And he is also the editor of the Oxford Handbook of Witchcraft in Early Modern Europe and Colonial America. And lastly, he is the author of Distrust of Institutions in Early Modern Britain and America, uh, which was published back in June by Oxford University Press, and is the book we will be discussing today. So, uh, Dr. Levac, thank you very, very much for uh, coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. No, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, thanks. So, um, before we get into, into the the heart of the book itself, what uh, what uh, what made you want to write this book? What was the what was the genesis of the idea for this book? Well, I, I think there were two sources. Um, one that goes way back is that I teach the history of political thought among other things, including witchcraft. But this has nothing to do about witchcraft. I, I think yeah. I have to make this clear. Mm. And uh, I have always taught uh, John Locke's two treatises of government because I teach um, 16th and 17th century English history. And um, one of the most distinctive features of John Locke's two treatises of government, which was published in 1689, was um, his argument, which is the first time it had been formally stated, is that um, all government is, or at least should be, based on trust. And that, that's the basic theme of his, uh, of, of his work. And um, we've always had class discussions about that, about the importance of trust in society and trust in government. And... Then, uh, in more recent years, um, I have become uh, increasingly concerned with the the, the the issue of trust and distrust um, in contemporary society, and especially in the last uh, maybe the last two decades, where we've had a, um, a, a an obvious decline 
in the uh, in, in trust in public institutions. And you know, you you can talk about trust as uh, as both a personal uh, trust, an interpersonal trust, the mm-hmm. trust between uh, individuals. But then I'm concerned about the trust about in in public institutions, and that has been so clear in mainly in the last two decades but really uh, you can sort of trace this back to maybe the 1970s maybe the 1960s at any rate um i uh, so those are sort of the two sources of a book that is mainly about i mean i'm an historian and it's about the distrust of institutions uh, government, but also uh, law courts and corporations and uh, established churches, um, uh, uh, legal institutions of various sorts, uh, back in the period between 1500 and about 1800, which we call the early modern period. And I have the successive chapters on that. But then in the last chapter, uh, which I hope we'll talk about a little bit. Mm-hmm. I talk about the decline of uh, the really uh, uh, striking decline of trust in institutions in uh, the the more recent past. And there has been a lot of literature about that particular development. And all that literature, and it's mostly academic literature, but it's also journalistic literature, uh, has emphasized uh, the, um, uh, the the fact that this is a, a recent problem. And what I do in the book, and this is informed obviously by my study of John Locke and 16th and 17th and 18th century Britain, uh, is that the, um, the, um, uh, the, 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 this is a sort of a, a, a short-sighted, interpretation of the origins of this discon- mm. of, of, of this distrust. And what I do in the book is I talk about there's a much longer history of distrust in Britain and in colonial America, up to about um, 1800. And therefore, the book is intended to give historical perspective to this uh, recent development. Yeah, I mean that's the <laughs> that's the reason why uh, there is a United States of America <laughs> because of you know a breakdown in in uh, in trust in the colonies of you know all these uh, uh, British yeah, institutions. Yeah. But I mean you know so yeah it goes back uh, uh, a long time. But uh, you're right you know about the you know, all the uh, ink that's sort of being spilled on on this uh, uh, sort of distrust or loss of trust in institutions and and uh, you know uh, currently uh, but you also note that um, there's very little academic work on the subject of trust um, you know in this period uh, at least by historians that's right and and also there is very little mention of this historical dimension of the problem mm. among the academics and the journalists who write about this recent uh, loss of trust, which has really been quite profound. I mean, we have loss of trust in uh, not just in government, but in uh, at all levels of government, but in all sorts of institutions, um, you know, including the legal system um, and um, uh, in uh, established churches, 
uh, and um, incorporations, uh, and 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 yeah, and the entire legal system. I mean, there's something. One of the developments in um, in distrust is that although you have uh, distrust in institutions, and sometimes that has led to a loss of trust in the entire system of government uh, or the entire legal system. And that's sort of a, a, a third dimension of trust, you know, personal, institutional, and then systemic trust, which is one of the ways it, it, it's referred to. And therefore, people have lost uh, faith in, you know, in elections, they've lost uh, faith in democracy, or they've lost faith in various other um, systems of government. Yeah, yeah. You note in the book that, uh, you know, people's relationship with uh, other institutions, whether they be, you know, commercial institutions, uh, corporate institutions, legal institutions, uh, church institutions, ecclesiastical institutions, these are all closely tied to trust in their government and that that trust in yeah. government trust in government provides a foundation for trust in all these other institutions that's right yes absolutely that that is the main connection and uh, if you take away the trust and i mean the thing is that these are public institutions that we're talking about we're not talking about you know social institutions like the institution of marriage or anything mm -hmm. like that we're talking about public institutions and those are um um, institutions that uh, are either um, um, part of the state apparatus, hence, hence government, or they are in the public sphere, um, it, such as banks and corporations. But, I mean, government is really the key to it, and that's why John Locke is the most important political philosopher regarding that uh, trust, uh, institutional uh, trust, Yeah. Yeah, because the the two treatises, that's really the most, uh, I guess, comprehensive statement or comprehensive work on regarding uh, trust uh, in in modern political philosophy, at least uh, the most comprehensive statement regarding trust in government. And Locke is cited very often. Um, uh, both on the left and the right, in terms of the contemporary loss of institutional trust. Mm. Yeah, all right. So, um, I guess starting at the beginning, or actually, uh, would you say trust is more, uh, it's more an emotion or a sentiment, or is it more of a, a rational calculation? Well, you know, there is a big division among the um, sociologists and the political scientists and some of the philosophers on this issue. Um, there is one school of thought that says that um, a trust is very, very rational. In other words, people decide whether to trust a particular person, and that leads them to decide what the expected result would be uh, from uh, trust and distrust. But I have, and what I argue in the book is that I think of it much more a as an emotion. Uh, and um, that um, we, we, we have a, a, 
a sense that we should trust someone as opposed to figuring out whether we should trust that person based on that person's um, um, previous um, selections and decisions and what have you. Um, and, you know, that's, um, you know, I, I often think that, um, that, that um, a, a really good example of the importance of um, emotions in trust is um, when we uh, wear wedding vows, which in effect are requests to be trusted. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people don't sort of think ahead and say, well, what is this person's history of, of trust or anything like that? Right. Uh, you know, they just trust that person. Uh, and then sometimes, of course, that uh, those wedding vows are, 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 are violated and, you know, there is distrust in the marriage. And, of course, we don't have to get into all. I and mean, that's all in the realm of, um, of, uh, of, of, of personal trust. But it, but it applies also, I think, to the trust in institutions. Uh, do, do you trust um, General Motors? Do you, do you trust the government today? Is it instinctive, uh, emotional? Or is it based on the pattern of activities from those people? And, of course, it's a combination. But in the book, I emphasize um, emotion. That's, that's the way um, I view it. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, so uh, I guess in the same, uh, same sort of uh, area, uh, to what extent is trust considered a, uh, a social virtue or a or a civic virtue or a moral virtue I am reluctant to consider it um, a moral virtue uh, in terms of um, uh, whether there is uh, whether it relates to um, uh, whether it, 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 it relates to a question of what is ethically right, what is right or wrong. What I think is a moral virtue is trustworthiness. In other words, whether a person is considered to be worthy of one's trust. And trustworthiness, if, if you're a trustworthy person, I think that that has a very definite moral connotation because um, we expect um, people, if, if we place our trust in them, that is based on their, um, their character, their reliability, and their, their moral virtue. It's a, it's a tricky distinction, but I think it is, it is worthwhile. So, I mean, trust itself is morally neutral, uh, mm. and um, but uh, untrustworthy trustworthiness is not. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, let's see. So, uh, going back in time to really like the start of the this early modern period, it, um, you write there. Uh, you write that there is very little evidence for any sort of institutional distrust in uh, medieval England. And uh, that dis- uh, that distrust only becomes explicit, this institutional distrust, uh, during the reign of Charles I, which is, what, uh, 16, 
1649, somewhere around that. I right. And that it has a transformative effect. Uh, why is there little evidence, or what uh, what causes this big change and or this uh, big uh, break in institutional trust? Well, I, I think it's, uh, well, first of all, you don't have much institutional distrust in the Middle Ages because there is very little contact with or knowledge of public central institutions. Um, mm-hmm. uh, things are, are, are much more local. But then in the 17th century, you begin to have much more uh, the increase in literacy uh, with the increase in the size of the political nation. There is uh, much more concern about what is going on in the central government. And what happens with uh, Charles I, uh, and then again with uh, James, uh, Charles II and James II, which is uh, the, uh, which is, uh, those are the people that Locke writes against, mm-hmm. um, is that they <clears throat> are, um, there is, first of all, personal distrust of uh, Charles for all sorts of reasons, the abuse of power, uh, the corruption in his government, and that is transformed into a trust of his entire administration. So that's how you get from the personal distrust of Charles to the institutional uh, distrust of his entire administration. And either they impeach, I mean, well, they eventually, um, and, and it also leads to the destruction of um, the entire system of monarchy because they abolished the monarchy. I mean, Charles, is, his administration is brought down. They impeach uh, all of the, almost all of the judges. Uh, they uh, destroy the church. So there's distrust of the ecclesiastical institutions, and that's because of uh, Puritan opposition to him. And um, and then that eventually leads to not only his own his execution, but also the destruction of the monarchy uh, itself and the destruction of the church. So you get to mm-hmm. the third stage of distrust, which is distrust of uh, the systems of government. Uh, and then, of course, uh, what happens, I mean, John Locke is very young at that time. He's certainly aware of what happens, but then his struggle is with Charles II and with uh, James II at the end of the 17th century. And that is when um, he, he's a radical Whig and he is um, um, calling in effect for resistance against the, um, uh, the, the tyranny, as he perceived it, of those, um, of those reigns. And, um, and he writes the, um, the two treatises of government um, at the time of the Glorious Revolution, which uh, resulted in... Um, uh, uh, that was another revolution in which um, James II was forced to flee, and they bring in um, William and Mary. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, I mean, that is the that's the key period. But what happens is that Locke sets up this um, he, he he sets up a um, a rhetorical framework for trusting government, and that is what carries through into the. Um, into the 18th century, and of course, eventually leads very much so to uh, the uh, to the uh, opposition to uh, British government in the American colonies. And that Locke becomes very much the philosopher of the Patriots mm-hmm. in 
um, in, in the period leading up to the American Revolution. People like James Nodos, for example, he just quotes him all the time. Um, he becomes the main inspiration of the Declaration of Independence, uh, although, you know, Jefferson you know, cited other sources. The main one is certainly John Locke. And some of the words of the Declaration of Independence come right from Locke. Mm -hmm. I mean, just verbatim quotes. Yeah. <clears throat> the yep. long train uses and the fact that we have a right to change the government mm -hmm. and also what they say, of course, in the Declaration of Independence is we also have a right. If we want to, we can change the system of government, which they actually do because they establish a republic and, uh, and um, you know, destroy not just um, uh, <clears throat> monarchy, but they destroy um, the entire system of, of, of government and they set up the federal republic. Yeah, uh, why, uh, uh, we talk about how uh, influential he became in America, why uh, did he become, <clears throat> did Locke become so influential uh, with the uh, with the founding father, with the founding fathers, so influential in the uh, in the American colonies. I, I I think it was because of the um, uh, of the abuse of power, especially in the 1760s and the 1770s. You know, with the Stamp Act and then with the Intolerable Acts, and there was this uh, feeling that um, they were abusing their power. And they looked to, I mean, they were familiar with the 17th century radicals, but especially Locke. And therefore, they use him and the principles of trust that he says should exist in all governments mm. to, um, uh, to make the case against, um, uh, against the British government. So he's, he's really central uh, to uh, this, this um, entire... Um, a movement. He, he's, a, in effect, a sort of the patron saint mm. of the American Revolution. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what uh, we're talking about? What is exactly the essence of of Locke's theory of of uh, fiduciary government? <clears throat> that um, all government is based on trust, and that if a an executive or a legislative power should violate that trust. People have a right to resist that um, and even to take up arms against that government and to install a government that is based on the people's trust. Because uh, what he argues is that um, all um, the sovereignty resides in the people, always resides in the people, and they have the right to reclaim that um, that uh, that that sovereignty. So that I mean that's so you can mm -hmm. see why this is so powerful. Um, you know, not just in the late 17th century, but especially in America. Uh, in um, the, and of course that's the whole idea. I mean, the Constitution, we the people of the United States. Mm -hmm. In an order, maybe the words of the the words of the Constitution, um, we have that right because sovereignty resides in the collective people, and they never sacrifice that. I mean, Thomas Hobbes, of course, is the alternative philosopher who argues that the people surrender that power 
to the prince and that it becomes permanent and um, uh, and, um, and inviolable. And of course, that's where Hobbes and Locke, who many there were many ways in which they were similar, mm -hmm. they uh, uh, that is the way in which they differed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sticking with Locke, is there is there an emotional dimension to Locke's uh, understanding of trust? <clears throat> Yeah, I think there is. I mean, you know, he's a rational philosopher, but uh, he does indeed um, talk about um, the emotional dimension of his trust. The fact that this is this is part of our part of our psyche, so to speak. So yes, I mean, there is both a rational and uh, and an emotional dimension to it, and I think. Very few people recognize that emotional dimension, but I, I talk about it, and I, I have some citations of, of Locke in in the book that um, that reflect that reflect that. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, back uh, sticking with the with the uh, founders too. Um, and so, uh, how did the framers of the of the Constitution, the American Constitution? Um, how did they address uh, the problem of trust or the uh, conundrum of trust? How did they address that via uh, federalism and the separation of powers and checks and balances, the Bill of Rights, all that sort of stuff? All of that, right. Of course, here we're talking about Madison, who's the main architect of the Constitution. And, um, you know, and of course, Hamilton is the is sort of the second most important of the federalists and of course what they realized um in in after the after the conclusion of the war and the establishment of the republic that the the central government had to become stronger for all sorts of um, financial uh, reasons for uh, reasons of diplomacy and that the articles of confederation um, which were gave the central government very very little power uh, um, uh, had to be had to be re had to be reworked. So they have the Constitutional Convention uh, in Philadelphia, 1787. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, the problem that Madison faced is that there was among the the states, and especially the southern states, there was this incredible distrust of any kind of federal government, because I mean, any kind of central government, because they had just, you know, rejected the central government of, of, of Great Britain. So what Madison had to do was to figure out ways of uh, limiting central power in the federal republic. And he did that by, first of all, talking about shared sovereignty, because he had to reject the idea, uh, the British idea, that sovereignty could never be shared. Um, he had to um, um, uh, uh, reflect the, um, he had to separate powers. Um, um, he had to develop a system of checks and balances between or among the, the different um, branches of government, and then eventually, uh, although this wasn't done until the first Congress, which was um, 1789, um, he um, had to 
um, uh, passed the uh, the Bill of Rights, which were statements of um, rights that could not be violated by governments. All this is these are all limitations on federal power. And of course, during the <coughs> excuse me, during the um, uh, the period of the uh, ratification of the Constitution, that's when the Federalist Papers are written. And of course, they deal with all of these, all of these issues. And um, the, uh, the Bill of Rights, there was some opposition from um, the anti-Federalists. They said we want, and uh, you know, Jefferson was in that group, they wanted to uh, reduce the excuse me, <coughs> um, <clears throat> the powers of the, they wanted a Bill of Rights to be written into the Constitution. Madison said, no, is this fine? But then afterwards, um, he, and in fact, he forms the new, he, he joins the new, or establishes the new Democratic Republican Party with Jefferson. And based on the Bill of Rights in the uh, Virginia state constitution, they develop the um, the Bill of Rights, which then again are ratified as the first ten amendments of the Constitution. So you have a very interesting situation in which the um, in which the federal government is limited by in all of these ways, and of course those are still very much issues today. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, okay, uh, now switching gears a little bit, uh, talking outside of political institutions um i guess we'll move to uh, legal institutions uh so the main um the main conflict uh legal institutions in this period uh in uh early modern britain at least uh is the, the relationship between judges and juries could you talk a little bit about that and how um what's going on this sort of <laughs> Uh, power struggle is not like a good word, but uh, uh, the the give and take between the two. Yeah, I mean the there was a period there just before the Glorious Revolution, uh, in which the courts uh, were uh, in effect suppressing juries and were um, enforcing uh, decisions. Uh, that the juries uh, 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 the juries were opposed to, and you know they they would threaten them and they would imprison them. I mean, it's just amazing what they did. And the Bill of Rights, the English Bill of Rights, which is 1689, there were 13 provisions, and five of them all dealt with these judicial abuses that were um, mainly um, practiced uh, and enforced by um, the Chief Justice by the name of Jeffries. And um, the so that began a period in which, and of course the juries were trying to do something which is still, you know, an issue today, and that is they were trying to say that jurors could be judges not just of the facts of the case, which is what is supposed to be in England, but they could actually be judges of the law itself, which the judges said, no, we determine the law. And that is in effect, uh, and there were various cases that I've talked about in the book, which sort of reflect the idea of jury nullification, That, and of course that's still very much an issue 
uh, today where the juries can actually nullify a law. Mm. It's, it's a tricky issue, but so this is a struggle between juries and, um, and, and judges and the judiciary. And that continues um, into, uh, into America, but it's mainly the, um, the 17th century. And once again, you can see that it's how closely this is related to trust in government because mm-hmm. uh, the court were, of course, um, you know, um, uh, uh, royal courts. Uh, you know, they, they were the common law courts. <clears throat> yeah. And uh, the, uh, the charge of treason, the, the idea of treason, um, treason, uh, you know, was considered at the time and still, you know, is considered, uh, you know, very, very serious, very, uh, uh, socially and politically insidious violation of trust. Uh, That's but, right. I mean, yeah, but I would say just the, but the changing definition of the crime of treason in this early modern period and the, 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 the judicial conduct of treason trials, uh, led to the, you know, pretty widespread recognition that, uh, that, you know, people, uh, that, uh, you know, English subjects accused of treason were often prosecuted unfairly. So, uh, how did parliament step in and, and prevent courts from, you know, making these egregiously unfair convictions? Well, it was in the the 1690s they passed um, legislation Mm. which made it much more difficult to prosecute um, a a person for treason, which they demanded that there be um, two witnesses uh, to the act of treason, and those, they could not be the the same act. They they had to have, they had to be separate eyewitnesses. or a confession, and and you know it's interesting that um, that requirement for uh, witnesses um, in treason trials it's um, it's 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 in the U.S. Constitution. Uh, it's the only part of um, that um, the only place in American law where you have to have two witnesses, two eyewitnesses, or a confession to convict a person of a crime is for the crime of treason. I mean, in most uh, other uh, criminal trials, uh, you know, you, you can convict on the basis of circumstantial evidence, um, but you always have that um, in, uh, the, in the United States. And also, of course, still technically, um, you can, um, uh, and the, uh, treason against the U.S. government is punishable by death, although it hasn't um, been utilized for a long time in that respect. So we, you know, we've had recent cases of treason, but I mean that is that is one of the ways in which um, the um, distrust of judicial institutions was uh, addressed after the Glorious Revolution, 1689, mm-hmm. and then um, continued to be addressed in the um, in the United States, and that goes right through. Um, into uh, the present day. Okay. All right. Uh, uh, again, switching gears uh, to one of the other chapters in um, uh, financial trust or trust in financial institutions or commercial institutions. Uh, talk a little bit about the um, the 
the East India Company and the uh, the South Sea Company and the you know the the that South Sea bubble which uh, bursts and uh, somewhere in the 1720s I can't remember the exact year 1720s right yeah right. Um, so talk about the, those two uh, uh, companies and and their effect on uh, on trust in this period. Well, I mean, it, it led to um, uh, the, um, um, an outrage about the um, the um, fixed <clears throat> um, uh, let me see how I can put this. Um, there was a creation of uh, the trying to think of the best way. <laughs> Um, there was a, an inflation of the shares in the South Sea bubble, in the South Sea Company, mm-hmm. which was formed um, by the, the Tory administration. And um, people poured all sorts of money into uh, the stocks for this. And eventually it collapsed. And there was an enormous loss of um, invested income. And um, the um, South Sea Company and the um, and the um, East India Company and also the Bank of England became involved in this. And Bank of England was established um, in 1694, and um, it was um, it, there was a loss of trust in all of those corporations. And um, also in the government itself, uh, which was involved in the um, in the bubble. Mm-hmm. So you know that's the. <clears throat> I mean, it, it it is incredibly complicated, but um, uh, you know there was therefore legislation passed during uh, uh, during. Um, uh, the the following administration that um, addressed those issues and actually um, instituted all sorts of reforms that uh, were <clears throat> uh, um, that prevented such bubbles from occurring again. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can oh, go ahead, how sorry. all this related to the government. Because the government was involved in right. this, and of course the one is part of the government. So you have private corporations, but then they're in cahoots, so to speak, with the um, with, with the government. And of course, eventually, that leads to a, a, a change of government and the establishment of um, Whig supremacy um, uh, in um, in in the 1720s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, again, switching gears, but on the same topic with uh, something that's part of the uh, the structure of the government uh, this time. So uh, the Church of England, the main source of of distrust during this period uh, with the Church of England, uh, this it was this uh, anti-clerical uh, sentiment. Could you talk uh, a bit about that? I I think that. Um the i mean the, the the real the first source of the um discontent with the church of england was um 
because of the Puritan movement in the early 17th century. And that led, at the time of the Revolution, because, you know, uh, Archbishop Laud, uh, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury and the supporter of Charles I, uh, were all... um, uh, uh, were all uh, executed, actually, uh, and uh, in at, at the time of the First Revolution, the Puritan Revolution, and <coughs> they, um, and then in 1646, the Church of England was abolished, and it was replaced uh, first by a, sort of a Presbyterian system of church government, and then eventually with a congregational system of church government. But the church the church comes back, and there is still a tremendous uh, opposition to it, mainly from those people who are sort of the heirs of the, uh, of the Puritans, of people we call dissenters, who um, were uh, outside the... Um, they, they refused to attend the established church, and there was a great deal of persecution of them, but um, eventually, um, they, um, well, in, in 1689, there was an act of toleration, which allowed them to practice, or at least most of them, not Unitarians, not Catholics, but Protestant, Trinitarians, uh, who were allowed to um, prosecute, uh, or excuse me, were allowed to, um, to worship, mm. um, not be, um, and not be prosecuted for it. <clears throat> and then this this continues then through through the 18th century, all sorts of opposition to the established Church of England, which, by the way, is still an established mm-hmm. church, but doesn't have uh, that much uh, power. Um, <clears throat> in um, then there you know there uh, there are different models of church-state relations, and the English one is. Um, is basically uh, one in which the um, the, the state um, has control of the church, and then there is an, another one in which the church has control of the state, and then there's another one in which there's cooperation between church and state, which is what has always prevailed in Scotland, and then of course the the one that is so unique, really. Um, to uh, the early modern period is the separation of church and state, which is um, written into the First Amendment of the Constitution. That, by the way, is only at the, uh, that's the federal constitution. You still had established churches until about 1821 in some of the states in Connecticut and Massachusetts and places like that. So, So, once again, I mean, here you have a public institution that is part of the government, is a department of government, in which there is <clears throat> a great deal of distrust because of their supremacy. They continue to collect taxes, for example, tithes, mm-hmm. um, and eventually um, all of that is reformed in England, although not until uh, the 19th century. And then in America, the solution is the separation of church and state, which, of course, is a major issue even today uh, because of the different lawsuits that are uh, just once we recently had, I mean, uh, which about the separation of church and state, the one in which they're talking about the coaches being able to pray around at the yard line. You see that, and and this Supreme Court is um, 
it, it seems to be um, trying to whittle away at some of that separation, which, of course, is always an issue, because where do you draw the line between church and state? Okay. Yeah, the thing that... Uh, the thing that's really interesting to me uh, that I wouldn't have guessed um, reading the book that um, the most intense period of religious persecution in England's history, uh, in, you know, in English history, was not in the 15th or excuse me, in the 16th century during the the uh, the break with the Catholic Church and uh, you know and and Queen Mary and uh, you know Fox and the you know the Book of the Martyrs and all that sort of stuff, uh, but Actually, the after uh, <laughs> Richardson's persecution like really peaks in England after the uh, the restoration and uh, the restoration of the monarchy and then the reestablishment of the Church of England. Yeah, that that's right. And and um, you know, the, obviously there was persecution, you know, during the reign of um, Henry VIII, and then of course uh, Mary, and then uh, of course during Elizabeth. But there was nothing to compare with the systematic prosecution of Puritans, I mean, the ex-Puritans, in other words, the dissenters, uh, and then some Catholics as well, but it was mainly against uh, the, the Protestant dissenters in that period um, after the Restoration, when the Church of England comes back as the established church, and those, um, uh, uh, those Protestant dissenters are accused of treason because they were um, organizing um, protests against the establishment. So a lot of them were prosecuted actually for treason, mm-hmm. um, not just for violating religious conformity statutes. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Uh, now to the uh, the last chapter of the book, which uh, discusses. Um, the crisis of institutional trust in our era, which is, you know, uh, in the 1970 to 2020. <laughs> I told you before we got started, I was going to have uh, a few quibbles uh, with this. And um, uh, respectfully, um, let me say, uh, it seems to me, uh, after reading it, that uh, you let your... your uh, personal political bias color your analysis of how and why distrust is happening um, t- today, currently. And it, it, from reading the chapter, uh, it's, <laughs> it's uh, I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm trying to, uh, I'm not trying to attack you or anything like that. I'm, just, I'm uh, not a Trump uh, is what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, <laughs> no, 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 but. Yeah, but uh, but so but it's basically in the book uh, this all this cause of institutional distrust is basically the Republicans are the black hats uh, they're the villains and, and I'm not saying that uh, the Republicans don't uh, you know don't have any culpability or uh, for this they obviously do especially um, especially with those who are you know who carry water for uh, for Trump and his more insane bullshit. Uh, but the, the Democrats, to me, share a massive amount of culpability as well, and I didn't find <laughs> anywhere in the book or in that chapter uh, where you felt there was one instance or provided uh, 
uh, an instance where uh, the Democratic Party or members of the Democratic Party were were responsible for for causing uh, some of this institutional distrust. And all right, I'll, for, I'll just give you um, a couple examples. So, for example, um, during the Obama years, you write that that trust in the federal government uh, slipped during the Obama years. Quote, you know quote, mainly because of Republican opposition to his policies. So Obama was not responsible for the loss of trust in government. <laughs> it's the Republicans who opposed him. So, uh, and you, you cite the example of Obamacare. Now, Obamacare was a law in which the Democrats told everybody that uh, this was, uh, this is going to insure all the uninsured. Uh, it's going to do that. And while it's doing that, it's not going to increase the debt. Uh, and while it's, it's going to bend the cost curve lower, it's going to make your health care premiums more affordable. Um, when it actually, in in fact, did the opposite of all those things, you know, that, uh, you know, that, uh, uh, that line, you know, if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. Uh, you know, it was PolitiFact or Washington Post, whoever, the, their fact-checking thing, whatever, named that the, the lie of the year. Um, or uh, another example uh, with Obama uh, was uh, with the dream with the DACA with the Dreamers, the amnesty for the uh, for the Dreamers, where Obama um, said over and over and over again for a number of months that uh, for for a long time that he said he did not have the constitutional authority to provide amnesty for the Dreamers. He legally could not do so. It was not under his purview. In the Constitution, that had something that had to be done by Congress. He went on and on about this for months that he couldn't do it, and then he just went ahead and did it anyway. <laughs> you know, and that to me, uh, to me, is an impeachable offense. I mean, I think we could probably could have impeached like the last five presidents. Uh, you know, I think we could have impeached George Bush when, uh, you know, when they passed McCain-Feingold, the the, uh, um, uh, you know election reform law, the spending, and uh, he basically said, well, um, I think this law is unconstitutional uh, or doesn't pass constitutional merit or whatever, but I'll, I'm going to sign it anyway. Well, it's like, well, if you, you know, if you take an oath, you know, you place your hand on the Bible, take an oath to defend the Constitution, and then you do something that, uh, <laughs> that if you allow something that is constitutional, don't, I mean, that to me is something uh, that is impeachable offense. But my point is, um, uh, you know, there, uh, I, I, I'm not, I'm, all I'm saying is I don't think this is all a one-way street with the Republicans. I think the, the Democrats are, uh, uh, um, have share an enormous amount of culpability in this loss of distrust too. Um, and I just uh, want, like I said, but I didn't really see any uh, examples of prov- <laughs> uh, in that chapter where you really uh, take it to the Democrats hammer and tong like you do the Republicans. Yeah, it's probably true. Um, <laughs> no, I think the loss of trust in government and one of the reasons it's so pervasive right now is that um, on the one hand, um, Trump is responsible for deliberately fostering distrust of government. Um, 
Absolutely. with his attack on the deep state. <clears throat> and um, but then there is the certainly the other source of that, and that is the um, democratic loss of trust in the um, in the administration. Um, um, uh, and um, the politicization of the Trump administration of the um, um, of the Supreme Court and the Attorney General's office. I mean, those would be the the two most important things. But I think that um, well, one thing in, in terms of uh, um, granting amnesty to. Um, uh, Obama's granting of amnesty to the um, the, the dreamers that was just temporary, and it, it was only for a certain period of time. We still have that same issue. Right, right. They yeah, but, but but my point oh, is not not specifically the action. It's the uh, you know <laughs> the uh, the months and months beforehand saying you know if we're talking about building up trust, if you spend you know, half a year saying you're not going to do something and then you just all of a sudden change and then do it. Um, you know, do the thing that you said you were never going to do that you couldn't, that you didn't have the authority to do as, uh, as president, that it was something that, you know, you legally could not do. And then you just went ahead and did it anyway. But um, didn't grant them amnesty. He no. only suspected that. There's a big difference there. That's not an impeachable offense. But we can disagree about well, that. My, um, <laughs> okay, but um, <clears throat> let me say that um, in terms of the democratic responsibility for um, distrust, I think the main thing is that um, the elitism of the uh, Democratic Party is a great deal of the source for the distrust of the universities, um, the fact that there is this tr distrust of uh, sort of uh, coastal congressmen. Um, it, it's the, the uh, and, and also for, and this may be something that both parties are responsible for, is that um, the growth of economic inequality, which in many ways may be the main source of um, institutional distrust um, from, mm. uh, and, and that's the responsibility of both parties. Um, and, and, and that is what really, and there have been, there's been a lot of work on um, economic uh, inequality. And unless that is addressed, um, I don't know if there's any hope for um, for the return of trust, the building of trust I, I, in in government, and both parties are responsible for that. Well, I, I, I just don't think people really care about economic inequality. I, I mean, uh, I, I think people, I don't think people, um, unless they're like hardcore socialists or something like that. I, I it's not an issue that. Well, one, it never polls as an issue. That's something that people, you know, really care about compared to other things. It's always something that the polls very low. But like, as as long as people um, feel like they're getting ahead, feel like they're, you know, making progress uh, uh, financially, 
uh, in their work lives. And I don't think people really care, you know, how much more money, uh, you know, someone living two towns over might make or how much money, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos has or Elon Musk or something like that. I just, uh, you know, it doesn't, um, I, I don't think that really resonates. Uh, I, I just don't think people care about that very much. Well, uh, you know, if, if they're if if they're really doing well, yes, that's true. But I think that people need to um, feel that they can trust the government only if the government works for them, and the government is not working for them. And one of the main reasons that it's not working for them is um, the gross inequality. Um, in the tax system and in almost everything else. The tax system. We, I, I have, really, we have one of the most progressive tax systems in the world. I mean, you know, uh, you know, yeah, half and, of the and, half and, of the country doesn't even pay income tax practically. Uh, you know, um, or, or ta- you know, uh, 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 the people that really—it's uh, not uh, uh, so much. The people who really get helped by the tax code um, more than anybody are uh, the people that are undertaxed the most uh, put in the tax code. It's not the rich; it's the it's the the middle class. Um, you know, the, as as a share uh, as their share of the tax burden is compared to you know their their share of the uh, GDP or whatnot is significantly lower. Because like so most people, you know, forty some odd percent of people don't really pay income tax to begin with. Um, you know, if you want to talk about other taxes, uh, excise taxes or sin taxes or uh, what have you, um, but, uh, I, you know, the, our tax code is not in any way, shape or form uh, regressive or anything like that. It's, it's a, um, you know, the, uh, the, the wealthiest, the, the top uh, quintile of the tax code uh pays a significantly higher share of the uh, income taxes in the United States than uh, that than their share of GDP. Mm. Well, but, I don't know. We have we have corporations don't pay any income tax. Well, I mean that's a different. Uh, that's not <laughs> not every corporation. I mean, but that. Um, yeah, but it, 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 and, and the top percentage the percentile pays a much lower percentage of the um, of, of taxes uh, than um, you know, their their rate of taxation is much much lower than that of many people you know including myself let's say in in the middle class or I'd be upper middle class mm. um, I pay a much higher percent I pay more than 20 percent in my taxes um, and I'm not wealthy um, at any rate. But, you know, one thing is that um, I, I should mention there have been periods in British and American mm-hmm. history in which there has been a certain amount of trust in government. Oh, yeah, it's and not linear. All, it, it ebbs and flows. That's right. And the period for most, um, for, for both countries where trust was highest was in the early 20th century, um, well, late 19th, early 20th century, where you had the introduction of progressive taxation. And um, there is a more general 
ascent. And also in Britain, for example, the beginning of the welfare state, when people could feel that, yes, the government's policies are fair, they're transparent, they're consistent, they're efficient. Um, and there is reform, for example, the breakdown of monopolies, for example, in, in, in both countries. Um, also, there was a feeling at the time of the Second World War that uh, you trusted government because uh, of the war was considered to be um, a, a defensive war for a good cause. And so, I mean, you have the, and of course, um, all of that was destroyed with the Vietnam War um, and the, even the Gulf War. <clears throat> but um, you mean the Iraq, not the the, the Iraq yeah, War, yeah. not the not the Gulf War. I mean the second uh, war, the second war in Iraq, the not the second, there. not not the one in '93, right? Right. Um, so, um, it, uh, and that has been lost. There isn't a sense that. The system is fair. There isn't a sense that the same rules um, um, are applied consistently, and there isn't there isn't favoritism anymore. Uh, and I think that that and 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 that is the responsibility of both of both parties. You know, perhaps there's more responsibility for. Um, should be placed on the shoulders of Republicans. But it also, you know, it certainly is true for, um, uh, certainly true for Democrats as well. Yeah, I, I mean, mean, they, well, it's just, they have inequality. And that that's why I think that inequality is important because it's the system is not considered to be fair. I, I think there's a general sense that, things aren't fair. I don't know if that has to be to do with inequality. It just seems like the government has grown or just uh, for one example uh, uh, just like why people lose trust. Um, the whole COVID uh, the thing with the, the when we were all locked down for COVID everybody you know, was like alright we're going to do two weeks everybody's going to you know uh, effectively quarantine, you're not going to go out, not, we're going to close all the businesses, close all the schools, everyone's going to stay home and all this, and we're going to try to be COVID, and then the the, the, the restrictions went on uh, longer than that. But, um, so they said, no one, you, basically everybody was going to take it, take one for the team, uh, you know, suck it up, we're all going to do this together, and, uh, you know, try to beat this thing. So everybody, I mean, really did that, you know, this is, you know, pre-vaccine, uh, that period. So in 2020, when this thing was first, like, you know, getting started, um, you know, shut businesses down, shut schools down, all this stuff. And then the George Floyd thing happened. Um, and then after George Floyd was murdered uh, by the police officer, we had all of these protests that are, you know, riots and protests that happened. And um, <laughs> people at the CDC and all these places said, well, you know, you shouldn't, uh, basically, uh, the protesters were given a pass and allowed to, you know, they said we, we couldn't do all these things. And then all these protests happened and everyone says, hey, look, you know, there's thousands of people congregating, you know, outside, maskless, you know, things you say we can't do uh, for the reasons. Why is this acceptable? And it was just like, well, um, 
structural racism is a larger public health threat than COVID. So this is an acceptable uh, use of, um, you know, so this is allowable, but like your protest for whatever else you wanted to protest about, if you wanted to just protest about the, the, the COVID restrictions period, no, that's not acceptable. Uh, but this protest is acceptable. And it had really nothing to do with any sort of science or any sort of data or anything like that. It was just a completely political calculation, a political decision uh, as to who's allowed to do something and who isn't. And, um, you know, these are organizations that people normally think of as sort of being uh, apolitical or uh, not making those decisions in that way. And, uh, and then instantaneously... Uh, you know, there's a there's a distrust now between anything uh, the CDC is going to tell you, um, because now because it's made been made obvious that they make their decisions not only best on whatever the science is or whatever the data is, but whatever they think is the uh, the politically correct. And I don't mean politically correct as in like PC. I mean politically what the uh, I mean, correct is in the right thing to do. Uh, you know, they're going to, they base their decisions on what's politically correct and not just what's scientifically correct and stuff like that. And then people just, you know, throw up their hands and say, well, you know, how am I supposed to trust this organization now? Or, you know, just the whole thing with, uh, with masking, you know, remember when it all started and they said, you know, uh, you don't really need the masks, uh, don't buy the masks, uh, you know, don't do masks. And they, uh, which they knew at the time that, um, was untrue, but they wanted to make sure that all the the frontline healthcare uh, workers and the hospitals and doctors' offices and all that stuff had uh, that they were going to have masks to be able to work, you know, through this pandemic. And then it comes out, you know, uh, that they basically admitted that they, uh, you know, lied to people at the beginning uh, to just just to make sure that you know we didn't have a shortage of masks for these workers. And then again, so when you lie to people. Um, you know, it's uh, so stuff like that. Um, you know, I, I think that like really bothered, you know, a lot of people. And um, I, I think it's things like that, then more so than, you know, inequality or anything like that, that really like drives down uh, or, or chips away at, at, at trust in these institutions. Um, when you were talking about the George Floyd gatherings, mm. what were you saying that they gave them a pass? What they what, were basically what, what, it, it was it was essentially it was something like uh, you know because no one was supposed to be going out. Period. No, you know it was everyone's supposed to be staying at home, making sure that we bring infections down and all that sort of stuff. And then uh, the protests happened after George Floyd. Um, and then, uh, you know, uh, everyone was like, hey, you know, uh, why are you allowing this? And it was like, and it was literally because, uh, essentially was because they considered uh, institutional racism a, a larger public health emergency than, than COVID. But what what did they do? I mean, they didn't... they just allowed them to to. Uh, what do you mean they? Um, I mean, they, it they gave public... it they gave it their blessing. They gave it their their and, okay. And what was what was it was something it was something that was socially acceptable to do that that leaving your house for any other reason was not. 
allowed. I mean, not well, not I saying mean, not allowed, but I'm saying it was not it was frowned upon. But this one thing was okay. This, and, the, and and what what did they do at exactly the same time when you had the biker gathering, which resulted in the, a super spreader event? I don't think what that actually do happened, but um, but 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 the point is that that was that was considered something ill. The, the biker gathering was considered an illegitimate. Uh, 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 socially illegitimate uh, thing to do. It was a selfish thing to do. It was, uh, you know, again, it, it was the, the potential to be a super spreader. Whereas the the protests for George Floyd or whatever for against structural racism or whatever the hell it was, that was fine. That was socially acceptable. That was something you, uh, you know, we didn't have to worry about that being a super spreader. Or, you know, or uh, uh, that was fine. That was something that was okay. I remember specifically when they expressed exactly that concern about the, the super spreader event. I remember that exactly. I don't know why you're saying that they approved of it. Of course they did. It they, was, it was something. Did. The CDC didn't. Did you say the, the CDC I'm saying. I'm, no, they, yes, they absolutely. They, it was absolutely. This was something that was socially acceptable to do. That you were not the to, CD, the, the CDC said that. Mm -hmm. I would love to see any kind of reference to that. Okay, I'll send they it to never you. said that, huh? I'll send it to you. Um. Okay. Anyway, so. Uh, okay. At any rate, um, but what you just said. Um, about truth, I mean, I think that that is by far the most important dimension of trust. You know, you have to trust people's truthlessness. And um, if we're going to be talking about lies, the onus of responsibility for distrust because of people's truth is, is, is the Trumpites' war on truth, on scientific truth, on facts. And there's nothing to compare with that in terms of, um, of, of lies that um, might be said. I, I mean, it's certain. I mean, there's just uh, no comparison. Again, I don't. No I, I don't disagree that the the Trump people and uh, that the acolytes of the Trump people, the Trump supporter for the most part, not everybody. I mean. Uh, have a problem with the truth but again this is something that like so you bring up in the book um uh you make a big deal about the people respecting the like integrity of elections and trump in 2020 and and everything about what trump has done post 2020 uh you know saying that everything was rigged and it's a fraud and i'm the real president blah blah, blah. all that is terrible i agree but this is something that democrats have been doing for the for 20 years, you know, you still hear that Bush stole the election in 2000 when that was not true. There have been, you know, uh, uh, investigations done by the Miami Herald, USA Today, looking at, uh, you know, they did an actual um, uh, full state recount in Florida, and uh, you know, Bush still won that election. Uh, you know, they did this in 2004, remember in Ohio with the, the, the Diebold voting machines or whatever, the irregularities or whatever. And, you know, you had 
Howard Dean going out there and saying, I'm not confident that this election in Ohio was fairly decided, and uh, there's voter suppression, and uh, not reliable, and, uh, you know, all this stuff, and Hillary Clinton to this day cannot admit that she lost that election in 2016 fairly and squarely, that, you know, uh, it was all the Russians' fault with the, you know, meddling in the election, and not the fact that she was, you know, one of the most unpopular <laughs> presidential candidates uh, in the history of the country, with you know, a, with a 20-year-long strain of uh, of baggage, and uh, I mean, just I mean, Stacey Abrams in Georgia. I mean, this woman, the that ran for governor, um, lost the election for governor in what, 2018. Never conceded the election. Still insists to this day that that election was stolen from her, even though she lost that she lost that gubernatorial election by like four times as many votes as Trump lost uh, Georgia to Biden two years later. And to this day, even though she goes out there and makes these claims, uh, you know these these false claims, she's you know faded by the media. She's this. Uh, you know, she's treated as this this martyr to you know uh, uh, this martyr to uh, voter suppression or you know all this stuff, and that's just not the case. Um, you know, and so again, so what Trump is doing is bad, but like this is the Democrats have been chipping away at this, chipping away at this, chipping away at this for you know a, a, a generation. And uh, it's wrong when Trump does it, and it's wrong when they do it. Uh, but again, this is just not something that the onus is just on on Donald Trump and the people who support him. I mean, this is uh, this is a a problem. This is a bipartisan problem where it's getting to the point where either side cannot admit to to themselves uh, that they you know they they just you lose. Like sometimes you lose. And uh, every, you know, this is other than the two Obama elections, uh, you know, there have been calls to the legitimacy of the last, you know, of one, two, three, uh, four of the last six presidential elections. And that's, um, you know, I mean, obviously that's dangerous because, like I said, we've gotten to the point now where just no one believes the whatever is right in front of their face. I mean, it's just, you know, uh, you can lose by 11 million votes and, and still, uh, and even though the, the electoral vote, I mean, the popular vote doesn't mean anything, but uh, you can lose significantly and then you just, no one admits, uh, can admit that they lost. So do you think that the Democrats have... Um, been responsible in the same way the Republicans have regarding the elections that some people feel um, are not um, are, 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 are not are not valid that they have been uh, corrupted in in various ways. Do you really draw a comparison between what Trump has done regarding? The big lie, getting an entire political party, or at least a large portion of it, to endorse what he has said, to get the media to endorse that. There's just no comparison between those two situations. We don't have a record of any other president uh, actually being... I'm not saying it's just... I'm not saying... 
I'm not saying it's just as bad. But to say that the Democrats have no culpability in this when they treated, you know, they treated George Bush as an illegitimate president from day one. Uh, that canard has been, that still follows him around. That that Gore actually won the election. How extensive is that? Do we have we had campaigns that have insisted right through George Bush's administration that he's an illegitimate president? Absolutely, I seen that. absolutely. Oh you no! Oh come on! You're no. trying. Oh, that again. This still dogs that when people bring up two thousand, they the fact that that election was stolen, and that's just not and, the case. And that, and that is a movement that has infected the Democratic Party. Absolutely. Absolutely. Again, I, Hillary, Clinton, Hillary Clinton to this day cannot admit she lost 2016 fairly and squarely. She can't do it. She can't. She, okay, she, she but, was the, literally the, like, like I, two, I two days before, two days before, like the 2020 election, she was like on TV saying that the 2016 election was illegitimate. I, I know, and, and I know about Stacey Abrams as well. What I'm saying is, to what extent has that then become a, a, a standard bearer, so to speak, for the Democratic Party? Where have been the, the campaigns? Where have been the, the media supporting this? Whereas everything that has happened with Trump supporters, so much so that they've lost faith in all elections, um, I, I just don't see that comparison. You're sure there's going to be discontent. But I, I can't see that. I mean, if you took a poll at any point in the Democratic Party and said, um, do you think that this election was stolen? I, I don't know if we've had such such um, uh, uh, polls taken. Um, I, I just... You're not going mean, to get that. Yeah, I think you absolutely would. Absolutely. Well, I mean, we, Jesus Christ. I mean, in the in I I, I can remember, uh, in the, in the later years of this the second Bush's second term, <clears throat> there were like polling questions going around about whether or not uh, do you think uh, 9/11 was um, an inside job that you know. That either the Bush administration allowed 9/11 to happen or actively colluded uh, to let it happen, and like 40-something percent of Democrats said yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just uh, uh, that was it was like a Zogby poll or a couple other polls at the same time. 40 percent of the Republic or the Democrats who answered that question thought that George Bush either instigated or uh, let 9/11 happen. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, it's a... Uh, I, I don't I mean, the, remember that at all. I yeah. mean, I know that they were saying that, well, yeah, there was a, there was seven minutes when he didn't take action, and he certainly should have, but I when don't he, remember... What, when he was sitting and talking to... I mean, yeah, she, yeah. They, gave, they gave Michael as Moore, opposed, they gave Michael Moore a seat of honor at the Democratic National Convention, right next to Jimmy Carter after that, uh, was it, Fahrenheit 9-11 came out? That um, you know that basically that movie basically said that uh, you know uh, they tried to cover up 9/11 uh, because of Halliburton and that you know and actually Halliburton was you know pretty pleased with 9/11 because it would lead to more contracts for them and whatever you know that was in that movie they, they put you know right beside Jimmy Carter standing ovation at, you know at the, the Democratic National Election 
in 2004. I mean, that was just nothing more than a conspiratorial propaganda film, you know. And uh, uh, yeah, I, I'm not denying Michael Moore is a, conspira- a conspiracy theorist. I, I'm not denying that. I'm just talking about the scale of this comparison that you're drawing, and I I cannot see any substantial uh, comparison between that. If you took a poll, well, we, I, we don't. I, I just it, it's just amazing. I I, I, I cannot believe that there is anything comparable to what um, the Trumpites have done, the big lie, and the fact that it has infected the entire party and that it has infected the media. I don't think it's infected the entire party. Well, a, an awful lot of... Yeah, significant, a significant number, late. but yeah, I know. But, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and but, I, there's no way that that could be true of um, the, the Democrats. Um, in, in response to these other quote stolen elections, I don't know. I well, just, I, mean, I mean, okay, you, I don't know. No. Anyway, but um, I'm not saying it's like I said. Obviously, what Trump has done uh, after the election is um, horrible. There's never been as someone as vociferous about it, but. I'm just saying that the uh, the Democrats, I I just I, I don't I don't uh, you know the, the way they harp on about it when they've been you know when they've been basically saying that every election that they lose is is illegitimate um, you know when they put an election fabulous like Stacey when you know when election fabulous like Stacey Abrams is graced with on the cover of Vogue. And, you know, she's getting all these, uh, uh, you know, uh, puff pieces written about her when she did literally the same thing Donald Trump did, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, accuse, uh, saying, you know, never conceding, uh, accusing uh, uh, them of being, you know, a cover up or, or whatever to keep them from from holding that office. And the Democrats just go, oh yeah, but Stacey Abrams is great. Uh, you know, uh, you can't you can't have it both ways. Like if you if election integrity, if, if you honestly think like that is such a huge problem, I'm not saying you personally. I'm just saying in general, if like someone thinks that is actually like a huge problem, then you can't go propping up Stacey Abrams as this you know shining light. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's just my that's my point. I don't know. Well, I mean, uh, and, and um, there was. Certainly, evidence and still evidence of massive voter suppression in that Georgia election. Oh no, absolutely you... not. There absolutely was not. No, absolutely not. That, well, that, 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 I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, you know, and that's another problem. If you want to talk about respecting the integrity of elections, talk going out there and talking about this widespread voter suppression that does not exist. And saying that it does is that's a that to me is that is much of a problem, in respecting the integrity of the election, or the or, or trust in government or institutions or what have you, than saying like oh I lost this election or I won this election even though I lost. Um, it just you know, there was this this uproar last year. Uh, it was twenty yes twenty twenty one when Georgia passed that election integrity act or whatever the the election reform bill and. You know, Stacey Abrams was calling it Jim Crow 2.0, and 
uh, you know, Biden said makes Jim Crow look like Jim Eagle or uh, whatever the hell it was, you know, whatever the hell it's supposed to mean. Huge uproar. You know, baseball pulled the All-Star game out of Atlanta that year because of that bill, because of that law that they signed in. And so that everyone said was going to is voter suppression and it's going to suppress the vote is the idea of this is to keep minorities from voting, all this stuff. And what was the outcome of that of that law? Well, in this year, the early voting turnout surged more than double. Uh, uh, both the, the 2018 and the 2020 primary election turnouts in Georgia, including with black and minority voters. Over 100,000 more black people cast early ballots this year than in 2018, which is a threefold increase. Um, so if that the, the object of that bill was to suppress the black vote, um, it did a very awful job of it. In theory, and you know, we heard about how you know, again, this is Jim Crow 2.0, right? Because they're they're making all these changes to the law, and uh, they're taking away early voting days or or whatever, and all this other stuff. So you know, uh, but the Georgia law is actually far less restrictive when it comes to absentee valing, early voting, than in places like New York, uh, and. Uh, you know, New York only allows nine days for early voting. Georgia allows 17 with the option for two more. Uh, you know, if you're an absentee voter in Georgia, you don't need you don't need an excuse uh, to vote absentee in Georgia. You just request the ballot, you get one. In New York, you have to actually be absent from the county of your residence, you or or ill or disabled. Um, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just. That's the way it is in Texas, where you have to um, to get to be an early voter. Yeah, uh, and, I mean, and, and uh, you know, the last time that more that voter turnout, percentage voter turnout, was higher in New York than it was in Georgia, was was 2000, oh, 20 years ago, two thousand and four. So again, if uh, this <laughs> if they're really trying to suppress the vote there in Georgia and making sure black people aren't voting, they have a, you know, it obviously didn't work. I mean, there's just no voter suppression going on here. If <laughs> There can't be voter suppression if the number, of the, <laughs> the number of black people voting is increasing. You know, it's just... But that can be just as easily in response to the uh, the efforts at voter suppression, the closing of uh, it can be just as much that it, just because they turned out does not mean that in fact the law was not intended to reduce their turnout. That's the issue. I don't, but that yeah. was, but that's the thing. That was not the issue with the law. That was not the point of the law. You know, I know Democrats have these like fever dreams about this. You know, like, uh, but that's just you know not what happened. It was to you know clean up some irregularities. You know, make uh, you know uh, figuring out where you know uh, how many of the drop boxes or whatever uh, that are supposed to happen or are supposed mm-hmm. to have and whatnot and that sort of thing. But New York doesn't even have any drop boxes at all. You know, so like, so how is this Jim Crow 2.0? What Georgia is doing, and then what New York, what New York is doing? Huh? They haven't had it for a long time. They've never had it. They've only recently had it. What's that? I mean, that 
that, that, yeah. Well, who's and then, it? oh, well, great. Um, well, I think we've gone on too long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I just, I don't know. I just, I, like I said, you, um, like I said, you just make that charge in the book, uh, you know, the Republican campaign of voter suppression, but you don't, you didn't provide, you know, any examples, uh, you know, what and where specifically you were talking about. No, I mean, like, well, you, you, you throw, you throw, you throw out the, you throw out the accusation in the book that that's what Republicans are doing, but you don't provide any actual concrete examples of where and what specifically are, is suppressing the vote. Like, what is the evidence that the vote is being suppressed? Well, that, that is a completely different issue. I mean, I, I, I just, I, 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 I do not understand that. If I was going to talk about their efforts at voter suppression, I would, to be fair, I would have to talk about Democratic efforts at voter suppression. And I don't see that evidence. No, but no, my point is, you say in the book, it, this is a direct quote, a further cause of distrust in the fairness of elections has been the Republican campaign of voter suppression. And then that's, that's it. Right. And, then, and then right, but then you don't you don't list uh, and, and, you don't you don't provide any the, evidence of what that suppression is, where it's happening, and, and the actual outcome no, I, of that. I can't do that. But, but to be fair, what you're saying is that I should say, and the Democrats have been just no, as no, 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 no. I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm just saying I'm just saying that that is just I I just um uh, yeah. I think I think that accu I think the accusation that uh, making accusations like that without any evidence. I it's think not, it's not it's a statement of the fact that there has been and still is an effort among Democrats, I mean, Republicans to suppress the vote. And probably the best example would be my own state of Texas. And I can give you all sorts of examples for that. I don't know of any corresponding effort campaign by Democrats to suppress the vote. In I'm fact, not, I'm not saying. I'm, I'm, and that's all. That's it. I don't have to go into sort of evidence for it. That's not the purpose of my of, of my statement. But there's no question that there has been and still is a government, a, a Republican campaign for voter suppression and that's, that's universally no, see, that, i mean I'm, I'm sorry that's just that is a very loaded term to throw i mean there have been certainly there have been bills to clean up the uh the election process but to say that it's doing so uh for the idea to specifically um uh to depress the number of voters and depress the number of votes there's just no evidence for that there's no the, there's no evidence for where this voter suppression <laughs> suppression is actually taking place like aha there it is see look at that there's the there's that old voter suppression popping up there just the the, the, the numbers well, just, the numbers just don't support it whatsoever well, they don't okay. support it whether and it's I, between the the general electorate or or specific minorities it's just, it's just, you know, a canard. But my point, my point is throwing out, making that accusation, is also something. When you say that to people, that people believe it. That is this campaign of voter suppression, Jim Crow 2.0, uh, you know, Jim Crow in a suit and tie, all that stuff. And people believe that shit, 
and that's just not true. But that also brings forth that also contributes to the distrust of institutions in the country. That's that's my issue with using language like that for you know causing a call you know calling a bill you know Jim Crow 2.0 uh, uh, you know neo Jim Crow whatever when those restrictions are not even as restrictive as some voting law in one of the most heavily democratic states in the, uh, in the country you know I, uh, I'm sorry I just I, 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 I think that is uh, I just think it's uh, I think it's a pernicious um, label and I think uh, again that's something that uh, uh, causes distrust uh, unnecessarily unnecessary distrust in our elections in the same way that uh uh you know just as you know whatever donald trump says about how you know the big lie and all that uh you know stuff like that is just as bad i mean it's just it's it, it does it has the same effect it um it makes people less likely uh to trust the outcome of an election that's all well okay i um I could have presented all sorts of evidence, mainly from my own state of Texas, but I don't think we have to get into that. All right. Um, Where it's just, it's <laughs> massive. Okay. 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 Yeah. All right. And I'm a victim. Hmm? My friends are, okay. I'm sorry? Okay. No, at any I, rate. I, no, I missed that last part. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, I'm sorry. I missed that last part, what you said there. I said, I, uh, about Texas? Mm-hmm. I said, if I needed to present evidence of voter suppression, I could have just relied. I wouldn't, regardless of what's going on in Georgia, I could have relied enormously on what is going on in my own state of Texas. Okay. And I could come up with all sorts of information about how that has worked in this state. Okay. And I have no, no corresponding evidence of democratic suppression of the vote in Texas. Okay. Quite to the country. Okay? That's sure. what that's that would be my position. Okay. Uh, that's fine, but um I, I'm I'm sorry, just it's it's not <laughs> it's not a widespread uh issue. It's not uh you know uh well, never, right, well, there, yeah. well that yeah, that's a conversation for another day. <laughs> anyway. Um yeah, I but, mean it's been stated, and no one would disagree with this, that it is harder to vote in Texas than in any state of the union. What do you have to do to vote in Texas? Um, all sorts of restrictions on uh, mail-in ballots, all sorts of restrictions on registration, dating of registration. I mean, what do you, what do you, is, what do you need to register in Texas? Like, when you register to vote in Texas, what do you need to do? Oh, yeah. oh, presenting all sorts of documents, you know, um, driver's licenses and um, social security numbers and um, all all sorts of stuff. Is that like really that. an onerous restriction to to present a oh, driver's yeah. license, yeah. a driver's license, and, and a social security number? Well, well, yeah, and a special, yeah, uh, um, and some people don't have or driver's license or a state or a state or state issued photo ID, which you can get, you know, at a DMV. No, and, 
do that, but it's really hard, and there's been efforts to try to get them those. How hard is um, it? All you do, all you have to do, is go to a DMV and, you have and to just fill out. In and, order to to submit a um, um, to submit a mail ballot, you have to do that too. It's just it's it's a, at any rate. I mean, I don't, I, I don't, I just, I, I just don't think like, I, I just don't think like getting a driver's license or a state issued ID card, which you get into the DMV, any DMV for free, uh, is, um, I, I, I don't really consider that an onerous restriction. If that, I mean, if, if you, if you can't do that, well, I, I'm sorry. Well, then. I can tell you that it is, and there's all sorts of evidence about how difficult it is for the very poorest people in this country. Who happened to be a Democratic voting bloc? Uh, maybe not in Texas anymore. I don't know. We're looking at the polls, but uh, <laughs> losing the yeah. okay. um, losing a big chunk of the Spanish vote. Anyway, at uh, any rate, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, anyway, the uh, we've gone way long here. We had a, a very nice little argument. We have, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, the uh, the book is again, once again, distrust of institutions in early Britain and America. Uh, Really, really fascinating, interesting book um, about this sort of uh, history of institutional distrust and um, in this period and how trust is lost and and regained and and lost and regained very quickly and then lost again and uh, you know and all the different uh, um, all the different ways that happens and how uh, trust uh, like is, is the with all these sort of societal institutions. Uh, is all sort of interconnected and how <laughs> uh, loss of distrust in one affects uh, loss of trust in the other and uh, how, um, you know, and how events in, in England and Scotland uh, during that time period uh, would shape um, uh, the American polity and how, and the colonies and how we, we set about uh, constructing the government of this country and uh, really, really uh, fascinating um, about uh, how all that uh, how all that took place, how that came about. Um, so, uh, highly recommend the book to everybody out there. Uh, again, once again, it's distrust of institutions in early modern Britain and America, and the author is uh, Dr. Brian P. Levac. And uh, Dr. Levac, uh, <laughs> again, uh, thank you for uh, thank you for writing the book, and uh, thank you very much for coming on the podcast to uh, discuss it with me, and uh, you know have a little. Uh, a little back and forth, but uh, uh, but I really enjoyed the oh, book. Yeah, and, no, uh, thank that, you. That was great. I, I love it. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, but, but thank you. But again, yeah, but so really, much. thank you for the book and uh, and and for coming on. I appreciate it. Okay, I appreciate it. Thank right. you. No, bye bye. Bye. And again, if you like this podcast, uh, please uh, leave us a five star review and share with your friends. And if you uh, have books you'd like to discuss with us on this podcast, you can reach out to me at uh, tbenson at heartland.org that's uh, t-b-e-n-s-o-n at heartland.org and uh, for more information about the Heartland Institute you can just go to heartland.org and uh, we do have our uh, Twitter account for the uh, <laughs> for the podcast you can reach out to us there if you know if you have any questions comments uh, you know feel free to you know give us a follow send us a DM or what have you uh, our Twitter handle is at illbooks at I-L-L books so, yeah, make sure you check that out. And uh, that's uh, pretty much it. So uh, thanks very much for listening, everybody. We'll see you guys next time. Take care. Love you, Robbie. Love you, Mom. Bye-bye.